It happened partway through the first year of Operation Iraqi Freedom, October 17, 2003. Brian remembers only flashes of the day itself and has had to piece the rest of it together based on what others have told him. What's firm in his head is that he had not wanted to go home, even though he was due for a break. Sergeant J, he said to Jakubiak, his platoon sergeant, I do not want to go on mid-tour leave. Send one of the Joes. Sergeant McGuff, this is not your call. Soldiers who are in Afghanistan and guys with children are first on the list. You're in both categories. I don't want to go. I need to be here to lead my soldiers. Send one of the guys who's married and has kids. McGuff, you have been deployed three times in four years. Kosovo in 2002, Afghanistan in 2003. Now you're here in Iraq. Go see your little girl. But my ex is barely talking to me. Brian considered how depressing it would be to go home to a house that echoed with memories and broken dreams. His ex-wife had been Army, too. They'd split up after his first deployment, and she'd taken their daughter Sonia with her when she moved away. Now she's in Washington State, Brian told his platoon sergeant. I don't even know if I'll get a chance to see my daughter. Jakubiak was having none of it. You can't refuse. You are going. That is a direct order. Sergeant J, Brian was nearly begging now. He knew he had a reputation for being difficult, for struggling with authority. Early in his military career, he'd been denied promotions for disciplinary problems. But this was different. I have a bad feeling about this. It's not a good idea. I don't need to leave. Send someone else. Relax, Mac. Jakubiak couldn't believe this guy. Go drink some beers and get a piece of ass. Get your mind off this shithole for a couple weeks. Impossible, Brian knew. An army lifer, he was closing in on 10 years of active duty, and with his wife and daughter gone, it was his troops who counted most. Despite his early rebellion in the ranks, he'd risen to become a leader, earning a bronze star in one of Afghanistan's roughest battles, Operation Anaconda. Like many fellow Rakasans, the nickname of our brigade in the 101st Airborne Division, he was confused about why they'd been pulled out of Afghanistan and sent to Iraq. Brian was particularly disillusioned about the shift in focus. He'd lost family in the 9-11 attacks and felt a personal stake in tracking down Osama bin Laden. Who cared about Iraq, a country with no connection to al-Qaeda? But orders were orders. Brian had gone to Iraq and now, reluctantly, was going on mid-tour leave. Just as he'd suspected, he was unable to see his daughter. He spent his 15 days home doing what he'd been told, drinking beer, getting some ass, and impulsively trading his pickup, he owed more on it than it was worth, for a new red sports car. Why not, he asked himself. Debt was meaningless. Sure, he'd get fat paychecks while in Iraq, being exempt from paying taxes while overseas, and getting hazardous duty pay in a combat zone bumped up our pay, and there wasn't anything to spend money on during a deployment. But that wasn't the reason. It was more his nebulous future. Would you be thrifty if you weren't sure you'd be coming back alive? Being in a war gives soldiers a sense of foreshortened life. Why quit smoking when you might get shot tomorrow? And this was his third deployment in four years. It seemed impossible to even imagine a normal life anymore. Brian returned to Mosul, still hungover. Crammed like a sardine in the military plane's belly, he and the other troops dozed off in webbed seating arranged in double rows facing each other. Suddenly, the C-130 did a combat landing, coming in steep and fast. The men jolted awake, looking at each other with raised eyebrows. Iraq was supposed to be in SASO, stability and support operations. And Bush had landed on an aircraft carrier and declared mission accomplished months ago. What was going on? Brian's internal alarm flared. After the plane landed, the ramp eased down, letting in a blast of astonishingly hot, dry air, redolent of acrid jet fuel and the smell of burning trash and shit. Mmm, <clears throat> smells like Iraq, all right. Good to be back in the shit, someone joked. Most forward operating bases, FOBs, lacked plumbing, and modern portageons were just being rolled out. The norm was a makeshift shitter, 
a plywood structure with a toilet seat affixed to a platform, beneath which was a half barrel. When it got full, a soldier would add jet fuel and set it alight, stirring the foul mess until it all burned up. Although this disposed of the solid and liquid mess, who knows what it left in the lungs of everyone who breathed the disgusting smoke. At the division rear airfield, he and his friend Bobby were in for a shock. No one from their unit was there with their gear. They'd been told that when they got back, they'd get their weapons and PPE, personal protective equipment, back. But nothing was there for them. It was uncoordinated as hell. Without body armor or weapons, they would be unprotected on the trip back to Talifar, where a brigade's fob was located. Another alarm tripped in Brian's head. If he hadn't gone on leave, he wouldn't be in this mess. He, Bobby, and other guys from their unit managed to link up with the brigade convoy headed back to Talifar and borrow flak vests and Kevlar helmets from the guys heading out on leave. But it all felt wrong. There wasn't enough gear to go around, and what there was didn't fit properly.